Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 342 of Charlotte Reese Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here today with uh, co-host uh, Sarah Archer and Hannah Rue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we're going to start off first with an author feature with none other than award-winning mystery and true crime writer Kathy Pickens. We're going to talk about her recent book, True Crime Stories of the South, which dives into the rich history of criminal behavior in the South from Texas to Virginia. And we're very excited because Kathy is actually riding along with us today. She's going to be co-hosting and offering her perspective on book four of the Right Quote series. Yeah, we're going to feature that series today. Uh, It's uh, titled Storytelling, Inspiration, Research. We'll have audio versions of The Ford by none other than Sarah Archer. And uh, my reflections, we'll have a peek by the host at some of the quotes. Yep, and we finish up today with reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming up in the next episode. And uh, we will be doing that uh, right after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, uh, here we are with Act 1 of our feature today. Uh, it's the uh, author, Kathy Pickens, uh, which has been, she's been on the podcast many times and uh, we're glad to have her back. This time she's got a book, uh, True Crime Stories of the South. Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, Kathy. Sure. So Kathy Pickens is a lawyer, college professor, mystery writer, and a crime fiction writer. Her first novel, Southern Fried, won the St. Martin's Minotaur Best New Traditional Mystery Award. And her Southern Fried Mysteries, I love that name, <laughs> are now available from Jaffe Books. She is Professor Emerita in the McCall School of Business and served as National President of Sisters in Crime and on the boards of Mystery Writers of America and the Mecklenburg Forensic Medicine Program, which is an evidence collection and preservation training collaborative. Kathy is also the author of Create, which is an awesome book offering coaching and workshops on developing the creative process and works with writers on telling their stories. Um, Her other books from the History Press include lots of true crime, (laughs) Charlotte True Crime Stories, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina, Triangle True Crime Stories, True Crime Stories of Upstate South Carolina, True Crime Stories of Western North Carolina, and Charleston Mysteries. Yeah, and so everything's just true about Kathy Pickens. Kathy, welcome <laughs> yeah. to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's fun to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, we, we, we've all got a, a six degrees of separation with just four of us here, and uh, it's fun. You, you've been on the show before, and we've talked true crime before. We've talked about Razor Girl, which is part of your true crime stories in Charlotte, and people should go get that book just to read that story alone. But you've got something else to say. I love, I've, I've loved uh, flipping through it uh, Uh, in the digital version, and I know I'm going to have fun with the print uh, when I can get my hands on it, but uh, this book is a a bigger project. It's, uh, you know, you're going from Texas all the way up to Virginia and into West Virginia, and you're picking out a few, uh, you know, some of the richly layered stories involving criminals, and uh, so give us a little, uh, you know, summary of what this book's all about. 
Um, Books a Million, the bookstore chain, approached History Press um, about this, about doing a true crime book, and they asked me to do it. And so it was great fun. I got to choose cases I found interesting um, across the South. But the thing that surprised me was how many of them had literary connections. The book I start off in um, Alabama with... um, Nell Harper Lee, um, she was working on a true crime book that she never finished. And someone, uh, Casey Sepp, wrote about that um, just a very few years ago. So there's inmates who've written books and even won awards for them. There's guys who shouldn't have written books who ended up in prison. I mean, it's just just interesting to see how many Southern um, writing connections there were. So that was fun. Well, I don't know what you're going to pick out to read for us when we get to the middle of this little interview phase of the show here, but I have to start out with uh, what you started out with. Uh, I love this story that was set in Monroeville, Alabama. And by the way, listeners, you can, you know, it's, it's set up so it's Alabama through, I think, West Virginia in mm-hmm. the table of contents. And you got, she's got a couple of stories from each one, but this is the first one. And it, it struck me as interesting because you got a reverend, Willie Maxwell, great name for a Southern preacher. <laughs> Willie Maxwell seems to be knocking off uh, most of the people related to him, but only after he spends 25 cents to buy life insurance policies on them. And dadgummit, he's getting away with it, you know? So what gives here, Kathy? Well, and right up to the very end. Um, and, I, you know, for years I knew, because I'd read everything I could get my hands on about Harper Lee, I knew she'd been working on a true crime book, but I didn't know which story. I just knew it was in Alabama. And so when this when it came out, Casey Sepp did her book and revealed um, what the case was. It was you just wish so much that Harper Lee had finished and published that book. Um, this was a leader in the the black community in Monroeville and um, or excuse me, Alexander City in Alabama. And um, but he also just found a quick and easy way to make a little extra cash apparently with disposable family <laughs> members and um, friends and and they all mysteriously ended up dead in their cars on the side of the road and right. I, I don't know why you know it took so long for you know catch on that maybe they were bludgeoned instead of in a car accident so um yeah that was his kill uh, his modus operandi was either have them under the car in the car beside the car <laughs> And I'm like, look, I'm not a detective, but at least I can see a pattern. He wasn't that creative about it. I mean, it's kind of the same thing over and over, (laughs) But one angle you talk about, which I love when you're telling these stories, is you add this extra element, which was Harper Lee and also Truman Capote. Uh, Apparently, she didn't think, even though she helped Truman Capote with uh, the research for In Cold Blood, she didn't think much of his truth-telling abilities, right? Exactly. And she never trashed him publicly, though she did in letters to publishing people apparently in New York say things about it um and the movies there were two movies done about them doing the research on the book Sandra Bullock was in one of them um they they talk about the fact that Truman's um personality and his interview style and just who he was did not resonate well in Holcomb, Kansas (laughs) Um, it was better with the literati of, in Manhattan, but um, Nell Harper Lee had the had what it took to get people to talk to her, and that was the same story in Alexander City, which is about 150 miles, I think, from where she grew up in Alabama. She was just down to earth, personable. They talked about one guy said, "Well, she cussed a lot." <laughs> 
<laughs> drank a lot and smoked a lot, <laughs> but just real personable and people were willing to talk to her and trust her, but not so much with Truman. Of course, they were childhood friends. They had grown up together. He would come and stay there and um, remain close, but Truman was a bit jealous of her mm. success, apparently, despite his own success. Well, I've got some more questions. I'm going to let uh, Sarah and Hannah elbow in because I know they've looked at the book, too, with any questions they have about some of the stories. But uh, before we do that, I just want to maybe get you to talk about how you went about selecting with all the— I mean, you describe how the South is sort of a haven for—maybe has more crime than other parts of the country. How did you go about deciding which ones you were going to feature? And he's not exaggerating. There's actually research that that says that the rather high— murder rate in the United States is most directly connected with the South. Um, we just, you know, fight first and figure out why later. Um, <laughs> and Good way to put it. Of course, we, 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 oh, well, we do. We're Celts at heart. And, um, and, and gun, you know, it's a gun culture, but, but we don't need guns. We have lots of other ways to, you know, dispatch people. But I had the luxury of just choosing stories I find interesting. So, uh, you know, over several decades now, I had collected stories that fascinated me. Texas had to be in the book. I understand people think, well, Texas and the South. Yes, because... They have Texas Monthly Magazine and some of the best true crime writers in the country telling some of the Mm -hmm. best true crime stories. So I I went to places and to um, stories that have fascinated me. One's a double jeopardy um, prosecution in Kentucky where a man murdered his girlfriend in a horrible way. I would always teach that case in class to say double jeopardy means you don't get a second shot at it. and so it's a it's a hideous case, but it's a wonderful illustration of what we mean. So I want to look at forensics, and I want to look at where the laws come from. You know, no body cases, prosecutions, and and famous cases. I don't want to dwell in something creepy. I want to have a reason why we read mm-hmm. this. But at its heart, I want them to be good stories. Yeah. So, Sarah, you've probably got a question. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you to talk a little bit about the. This is one of the Charlotte stories, actually. The tar, uh, the Toys R Us guy. Oh, I want to read part of that. I want to read part of that later. Yeah. Is it not insane? And the interesting yeah. thing is, I only knew about it from reading a book that was basically about um, how. Um, architecture and city design affect crime, and that case was in there, and I just thought it was hilarious. So, well, if yeah. you want to go ahead and read a part of that oh, now, that, okay, that'd be yeah, this one is, this one just, is fun. Yeah, yeah, it just it, thank you. I'm glad you, I, I liked it. I called it the spotty hidey hole. As a kid, the notion of living in a toy store would seem magical, but how many of us have tried living the dream? 33 year old Jeffrey Manchester did back in 2005. Of course, he had more motivation than most of us. He had been on the run for six months after escaping from the Brown Creek Prison in Popeton, North Carolina, where he had served only four years of his 45-year sentence for a series of offenses ranging from burglary to kidnapping. What better place to hide than behind the bike display in a Charlotte Toys R Us? (laughs) Manchester's criminal career had already earned him a cool nickname, roof man. As a yet-to-be-identified robber, he cut holes in building roofs, dropped inside, 
and robbed dozens of fast food restaurants and other businesses from Massachusetts to the San Francisco Bay Area. His attention to detail and his meticulous planning were hallmarks of his long run as roof man and also helped his prison escape in 2004 when he hid under a delivery truck whose regular route he had carefully observed. In the Charlotte Toys R Us, about 45 miles from Polkton, he took up residence. First, he hid in a niche behind a bicycle display, but as the Christmas rush brought more shoppers to the store, he tunneled through the wall to the abandoned Circuit City next door and, using drywall, built himself a bunker tucked under a staircase. (laughs) Inside, he fitted it out with the coolest things a toy store could offer, posters for his painted walls, a tiny basketball hoop, a smoke detector, and a DVD player with videos to watch. Sometimes he he had raced remote-controlled cars on the store's roof or ride bikes through the store, after hours, of course, and sometimes he'd eat baby food. He kept a visual lookout inside the store using a baby monitor while he plotted to rob the store the day after Christmas. He would use a gun he'd stolen in another robbery. A couple of store employees foiled his plan when they escaped from his holdup and ran for help. It didn't take long to find what arresting officer Sergeant Catherine Shimriff called, quote, his little spider hole, end quote, complete with Spider-Man bedsheets to match his Spider-Man posters. <laughs> and there's a little bit more of that, but gives you a flavor. Oh, oh my God. He was also like, uh, wasn't he also like leaving and he started dating a woman yeah. at a local church yeah. and would like there's give a, toys to her kids? Yeah, stuff. I like that. Yeah, As I, said, I said in here, he... Um, He helped her decorate her Christmas tree, gave her nice gifts, and generously provided toys for the church's (laughs) outreach program to needy families. That's so nice. (laughs) He didn't pay for the toys. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a requirement? (laughs) No. That's an interesting donation strategy. Well, then then they quoted his mother. They called him, of course. They they quoted his mother who lived near Sacramento. She she said, he didn't seem super embarrassed about the notoriety. I would be. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. I One of my imaginary friends when I was a kid, my dad made him up and he lived behind the Toys R Us in Greensboro. So there that's maybe it was this man. You, you could live there. He might have met him. Yeah, yeah, no. But can you imagine, how do you find a place behind the bicycle display? I mean, just the whole thing. And the, the drywall. Like, that's yeah. impressive. <laughs> Creative crime, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Really, and truly, and this, truly, truly. This is the beauty of these stories because, you know, you, you didn't just go after... Uh, the blood and guts and all that kind of thing. You're looking for something creative that ties into the true crime, as you said, a story. And one that I want you to talk about is also in the Charlotte area because it relates to um, literature. Um, you you work, Kathy, with uh, uh, people that are incarcerated uh, on writing programs and that kind of thing. So this this story fits very well into what you, you do in your volunteer work. But as I understand it, there was a fellow who got a, a maximum sentence for during the time they were sentencing people for drug crimes, uh, you, you could kill your neighbor and get a third of the time exactly. you get for having drugs and yeah. selling drugs. So he got this massive sentence, almost a life sentence. And yet he met a guy in there who had gotten off for killing somebody. So, I mean, gotten his, off in the sense he's only got five years or something. His wife. Horrible, yeah. horrible murder. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he knows this other guy's writing books now because he, he turned his life around a little bit in prison writing yeah. books. He's the he's the guy in prison who writes stories. So this other guy comes to him and says, "Help me write this book, an autobiography." And then what happens? Well, and 
And so the guy helps him. He says, oh, I've just gotten a $400,000 advance on my book. Now, any writer would just die laughing at the thought that, a, the, the, you know, that a new writer, untried writer has gotten an advance that size. And um, he said, I'll give you $10,000 if you help me write it. Well, then it, it just freaked this this guy out so bad, the guy from Charlotte, that he was completely unrepentant. And he's describing how he killed his wife. And hid the body and got away with it and everything. And it, this 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 former drug dealer came from a culture and he, where you didn't snitch. You just don't. He didn't believe in snitching. But this was so concerning to him that um, he did let people know. And actually, the police were already on to this and heard about the manuscript. So they came to him first. He didn't turn his inmate buddy in. But he did share the manuscript with him and describe the process to them. And that helped solidify the case against him. It was in Missouri. Um, so they were in a federal prison together. Yeah, and actually sweet. helped get this guy out. The guy from Charlotte actually got some, got release time for um, good behavior inside, for turning his life around, and for his work with kids um, to, to help them find some way other than crime and violence to turn their yeah. lives around and so it was, got a, a couple it was a cool story since you got a couple of lawyers on here he didn't think about the fact that though he'd been convicted in state court of a lesser crime <laughs> and and pled to five years that the feds could get him for crossing yeah. the border and yeah. uh then he got the big maximum but yeah. this is a perfect example is it not uh of why the rule write what you know is not a very good rule right <laughs> <laughs> or, or don't get somebody else to write it if you know a little too much. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't. If you, if, if what you know is you're killing somebody, don't yeah. write it down, right? Yeah. Well, well, the, in the South Carolina section, um, I have an, another inmate who had my same editor at St. Martin's, and won the mm. Private Eye Writers of America Award for his first novel, um, written while he was in prison. Now he didn't write about his crime. Um, but he did he did want the ten thousand dollar advance on the book so he could buy his brother who was also in prison a television set. It's really amazing oh. how many uh criminals go on to become writers. Yeah. There was a we had Stephen and I'm butchering his last name, Anna, who wrote a book called The Rook about a a, a, a bank robber up in the Chicago area who came, who went on to be a mystery writer of America writer while he was yeah. in prison so yeah and i know you've been begging to ask a question here what you got for Kevin? <laughs> i'm doing good like hold myself back because uh. y'all know i'm a talker <laughs> uh. Uh, i have a ton of questions i love true crime stuff this is like i'm so i just get so invested in all of it um but i think in kind of tying back to what we were i i don't know i feel like something that you do really well and it might just be because i know you but you kind of tie in humor so well like you look for you're not just doing all of the the you know awful cases but even when you are you got kind of some neat title names in here <laughs> you know <laughs> that's sort of what i was taking i loved it like the man who loathed picnics okay that's like my dad <laughs> without the strict nine yeah okay. right yeah and then the apple dumpling game i love uh, gang um i love that that's so cool so how do you how do you like pick out what you want to call a chapter you know like I, you know what's that it, process ju it like? just it just kind of comes the um that those are quotes from people in the story and they really yeah. stuck out to me so this is the ultimate in you know sort of selfish indulgence um, because I get to choose what I want to do and history press gives me great latitude in that and um, I'm really appreciative of that I also get to 
pick out the the artwork and the photographs and they turn it into a beautiful book but um I get to just have my fingerprints all over it which is fun and and I do think the guys I know in prison and the the cops I know and lawyers I know they all have wacky senses of humor and so I don't I don't want to sound, (laughs) uh, yeah, to survive. It's like, you know, emergency room doctors and stuff. And so I don't want to make it sound like I'm belittling these things, but there's always this sort of wry humor that embeds the best of these stories, I think. Well, um, Kathy, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your process of writing uh, True Crime? I know we talked in a previous episode or two about this, but you've written a whole lot more true crime books uh, since <laughs> yeah. then, so you may your process may have evolved yeah. a little bit. Uh, talk about that. It's still long days. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I get started on, and I can't. I got good down the rabbit hole, and I can't get back out. Um, this book, I don't think I could have written even five years ago, um, because I couldn't travel to all the places to get the photographs. I don't do. This is not investigative journalism. I'm pulling together material that's already been reported, whether it's a uh, an appellate court reporter, a newspaper article, or a podcast, or whatever. Um, but I, I, I have easier access to that stuff, and um, I, I have in one of my um, quotes taken from Book Four. We'll talk about later. But I mentioned newspapers.com. That is a gift beyond measure. Mm-hmm. Um, a fairly cheap subscription for um, easy access to double check facts, if nothing else, mm-hmm. um, on stories. And so I'm calling through, again, the, the favorite things. I've collected things over the years, a whole filing cabinet full of, I'm, I'm not, I, even when I was 20, I was that little old lady who clipped things out of the newspaper. <laughs> so that's come in handy now that I am a little old lady. But um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, and, and people would tell me stories. That, that there's one in this book from, from Eastern North Carolina that one of my former students was researching his family history. And he had posted it on Facebook, and it had a it had a one arm conjure man in mm-hmm. it. Now, who is going to say no to that? You know. So I thought of the fu- I thought of the fugitive when I saw that. I thing. know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> this might be even this might be even weirder. I don't know. <laughs> so, but it's they come from all over the place, and mm-hmm. and I'm just fly paper for weirdness, so it works out well. Sarah, did you have another favorite uh, story you wanted to highlight? Well, I actually had a, a quote that I pulled out. Let me pull this up here that I thought was interesting. Um, you said, for me, what fascinates is not random violence, but rather people, their lives and their relationships. And I think that even just from the stories we've been talking about so far, like it's such interesting characters, even though they're real people. I mean, th- th- these read like, you know, novels or novellas that a great Southern writer could have written. I mean, what are some of the things that maybe you've observed or learned about people just from all of the research into true crime that you've done over the years? Well, I, I talked about this um, on an earlier episode, I'm sure, but my big land shift I'd always I'd been interested in true crime since I started writing mystery fiction because I wanted to get it right. But it was when I left my career teaching at Queens and began volunteering at the Charlotte Mecklenburg Jail as a teacher um, that it smacked me in the face how many layers there are to stories we read about in the newspaper. I mean, I knew that on one level, but when I met the mamas of young men who were in prison or I took one of their kids to the movie or to computer camp, you begin to see the richness and lives that look messed up. 
but still have the hope and the possibility of redemption. And so I, I do find them, thank you for saying they're like novels, I do find that the really digging into what could just be a headline or a little quote on the evening news, um, that digging into it you find that it's a rich family saga and not always all tragic. There is redemption. Yeah. Hannah, we might have time for uh, maybe one or two more questions. You got something? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to pick which one I really want to ask the most. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I think I'm really curious to know just, um, you know, with so many crime stories and just like deep diving into so many murders and, you know, kind of weird crimes, whatever have you, um, how do you keep it kind of like number one organized in your brain and number two does it scare you <laughs> when you're looking into some of these <laughs> cases that that's it that's interesting question you're the second person that's asked me about being scared yeah um, the third person that asked me was was one of the guys in prison uh, is, are you scared and i'm sitting there going no <laughs> are you <laughs> are you <laughs> Because <laughs> of course they are. Everybody, you know, everybody has a certain level of that. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things that have, have scared me uh, about writing, um, not so much in this book, but I've written about a, a couple of people who are still out there um, and free and are really scary. And um, they're women. Mm. And I wouldn't want to run across either one of them. They're poisoners. Mm. I wouldn't want to run across either one of them. Um I mean, people who were in prison with this one woman, she's in her 80s, said she's the meanest woman she'd ever met. I mean, she, mm. the one writing was out. So there is a level of respect. <laughs> Most often I worry about being respectful for the people who are victims or the family members or, or even the the inmates themselves to be respectful in how I handle the story. So if I have to say I worry about anything, it would be that. Um, but the stories sort of organize themselves. Um, my husband, I'll be watching true crime on television because that's what you do. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm lucky that he likes it, that he gets engaged in it too. And some will come on. He goes, do you know this case? I'll say, yep. (laughs) 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 Apparently only so many stories out there. (laughs) So every now and then we run across a new one. But um, to, to I think also for us, because we traveled a lot to take photographs for the various books, to actually go to the place where something happened um, and be there is a different sort of tourism. Um, and I, again, I want to be respectful of that and not turn it into some kind of a side circus sideshow, but... Um, it does give you a different perspective on how the story looks in three dimensions. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, listeners, um, this book will have stories about a serial killer who leaves Louisiana to travel the country, a lonely heart swindler who visits Texas, an Arkansas uh, witness, a surprising spate of unrelated strychnine poisonings. Kathy's talked about that before. Apparently that happens to be the... uh, Murder weapon of choice in uh, North Carolina and South Carolina. Uh, West Virginia murder is revealed in a dream. She talked about the one-armed conjure man who commits murder for hire in North Carolina. And there's a forensic science uh, expanding the crime fighter's toolkit in this tour of some of the South's true crime. Good stuff. Good stuff. It sounds fun. Can't wait to read the rest of the stories and find out who's hanging out. Uh, I don't think there's a Toys R Us out there on 
South Boulevard. Maybe <laughs> no, they're hanging out at the Costco. It's gone. Yeah, the no, Costco it's or gone something. Now. Yeah. It's oh. sad, yeah. Well, now, this book is only available right now from Books a Million, um, okay. but History Press will release, release it more broadly um, to their network in a year or so. I'm not sure what All their right. schedule is. Well, that'll be fun. Y'all go out and buy that book. And uh, you, hey, as we finish up this, Kathy, do you have any uh, tips for young writers? You do. Uh, you teach classes. You've got uh, this great course you do. If you had to boil down uh, this idea of uh, how to get started writing for somebody, uh, what would you say? I'll quit thinking there's some right way to do it and just do it. Um, mm. It's a. It's going to be a hot mess. I don't <laughs> care who you are or how many books you've written. It's going to be a hot mess. Um, just, just get used to it and. First and foremost, enjoy it. If you're not enjoying it, why are you even doing it? Because I don't know about Landis, um, <laughs> but I can tell you there's no fame or fortune associated with right. it in this day when <laughs> very few people read it. Soon. So, but Yes, you do know about Landis. But, <laughs> there's no fame or fortune associated with it. But uh, there's a great deal of fun uh, yeah. and joy. So, so if you have a story percolating, go ahead. Go ahead. Get busy with it. What what? What have you wasted? Not much. It's that kind of advice, and this conversation is why we keep having you back, Kathy. We appreciate you being here. We're not going to let you go, though. This is not the end of your participation. Uh, listeners, uh, hang with us just a second. We're going to, I said, hang with us on a true crime show. How about that? So st- stay, <laughs> with stay, stay with us. Stay with us, and we'll be right back after this short uh, message. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottemeaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, listeners, we're back uh, here with Act 2. This is our writing topics discussion, and today, um, this is going to be fun. We, we've got our fourth book in the Write Quote series uh, that's out this month, and uh, we're, we're really excited about it. It's uh, The title of it is Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research, and Sarah uh, Archer writes the uh, forward for this book. She's recorded the audio of that. We're going to play that. And then we're going to talk about some of our favorite quotes. And uh, Kathy Pickens is going to weigh in on that too. But first, uh, let's listen to the forward. A question people often ask me about my writing is, where do your ideas come from? It's a question I never quite know how to answer. And many of the writers in this book feel the same way. They talk about being surprised by ideas which come to them in dreams or wake them up in the middle of the night or land on them seemingly from nowhere in the middle of a stroll. They claim their characters will take control and steer the story in unexpected directions. I got the idea for my first novel at random while driving and stuck in traffic. It's frequently those moments in which the mind is allowed to wander, driving, cooking, brushing my teeth, drifting to sleep, when ideas will surface from the subconscious. Other writers in these pages, though, do recognize some of their specific inspirations. C.J. Box takes inspiration from real-life stories he hears. Natasha Boyd takes inspiration from history. Wiley Cash finds it in true facts about a time and place. Philip Lewis mentions the importance of drawing on your own life experiences. Mark West has found ideas in the words of children. It's almost impossible to force inspiration. The muse is fickle like that. She comes and goes as she pleases. But these writers teach us that you can prime yourself to be open to ideas by taking certain steps, by writing regularly so that your projects stay active in your mind by doing research on topics relevant to what you're writing about, or just on things that interest you, our authors have some great suggestions for sources. By reading material that challenges and excites your writerly brain, and by giving your mind rest periods too, when it can think without all the noise of active focus, 
going on a walk is excellent for that. Then, when inspiration does hit, these writers want to be ready to capture it. They suggest you keep your phone or a notepad on you when you're out and about so that you can jot down ideas. Some even keep a notepad in the bathroom or by their bed to catch those shower thoughts or 3 a.m. brainstorms. Speaking from personal experience, these are smart suggestions because no matter how strong an idea seems in the moment, you can't necessarily trust yourself to remember it unaided later. Also, don't make the mistake of thinking an idea isn't worth remembering or recording if it's fragmentary or half-formed. Revisiting those fragments later is a perfect way to wake the muse back up. After you've assembled your raw ingredients of inspiration, remember that you're the chef here and you get to put your own spin on the end result. Countless writers have researched and written about World War II, but if you decide to tell a story from that period in history, it will be uniquely yours through the lens of your own perspective and voice. Once the ideas come to you, whether you fought for them or they feel like a gift, the real fun begins. And if you need a little extra spark to get you there, diving into these quotes is a wonderful place to start. All right, sir, that was well done. Thank you for that. Uh, I love the couple of comments about the muse there, the muse being fickle and waking the muse up. Kathy, how do you wake your muse up? You sit down and just get started. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm more artisan than artist, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of good quotes uh, in this book. Um, and the beauty of this, these books is we're, we're not, you know, these authors are just sharing from their personal experiences, uh, you know, how they get their ideas, and and they talk about storytelling, and they and they talk about the hard work too, the research that goes on. And, and uh, Kathy, you um, mentioned earlier uh, one source for research. It might be worth uh, repeating it again because it's referenced by a couple of the authors in the book, and uh, that is newspapers.com. It's a subscription service. Um, you can try it for six months. So yeah, I've I've actually subscribed. I've done a little research on uh, gold mining in North Carolina mm-hmm. because I'm looking at that uh, for the next in in my series. So it's fun. Uh, it's hard sometimes to read them. They the old newspapers have like <laughs> twelve columns, and, and the print is very tiny. You have to and, learn how to use the plus sign to make. It. <laughs> Move it, it ta- yeah, it's very yeah. It's and not the other thing easy. is, I mean, they talk about journalism today being, you know, depending on which party you're in, if it's fake news or whatever. But back then, I don't think they had any guidelines on truth when it came to the newspapers, right? <laughs> it's, no, and, and if you're if you're double checking sources, good luck. I mean, I found one article they had misspelled everybody's name, just made up <laughs> names for them. It just it was unbelievable. So, well, but fun, um, but fun. Sarah, you picked out a quote that ties into uh, Kathy's idea of just sitting down to write, something that Dale Neal said. You want to share that? Yeah. So uh, this quote from Dale Neal, he said, a lot of writing is just putting in the details that you pay attention to. Um, And I love this. I feel like it's important to not undervalue the small things and the details. Like a lot of times the, the little details are what really bring a story to life or bring characters to life or make something feel real. Um, They're also, I think, what can make things feel different or unique. You can have the same basic characters and same basic story, but uses details to really put your own spin on it and make it its own kind of unique world. Um, So yeah, I think that that's, and that's something we've talked about too, like when do you put the details in? Some writers will do it in the first draft. Some writers, I think Landis, you're like this where you'll kind of get the story down first and then you start fleshing in some of that stuff later. Um, So it's kind of different for everyone, but I think that the details are very important. Yeah, and Kathy, you, this true crime writing you're doing, oftentimes what makes a story unique is those little details, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it's a quote or something that puts it in its time and place or 
um, just that little unexpectedness that you wouldn't you wouldn't look for necessarily, but are delighted to find. All right. Well, Hannah, you've got a quote here that you liked uh, from Catherine Schwilly, uh If you'd like to share that, yeah, she says, "I am in love with an undertold story." Um, and I just love that for a couple of reasons. I, I feel like it's sort of like a, just sort of a dreamy statement to make first and foremost, which I think is just so like, I don't know, it's cool for a writer to say that, that they're in love with, you know, an under, I don't know. I just really like that. And then I like undertold stories. I don't know. Like, I mean, that's what makes books and stories unique, right? Is when you find one that you haven't really read anything like it. So, um, I just felt like that was a really cool thing to say. Isn't that Kathy a little bit? about what you're doing because some of these stories might have been told in newspapers as facts, right? You know, here's the facts, ma'am, and here's what happened, but you're telling more of that story, right? Yeah, and and at the same time, I'm sometimes leaving out what a newspaper headline might focus on, the gruesomeness or whatever, um, to try to reach for the humanity. So, yeah, and I, I, I'm with you, I, and I love that. I love that quote. It gives it gives space too for the reader's imagination yeah. mm-hmm. to add to the story. Yeah, speaking of true crime and looking at those details, Kathy, you picked a quote by John Hart, who he's one of those literary uh, criminal thriller. He really dives in. So share that with us. He's one of those. He's one of those uh, writers who went to law school. Along yeah. with a lot of us. <laughs> Um, I, I said, he said, I give most credit to the time I spent doing criminal defense work because it taught me a lot about people that do bad things and how far the effect of bad deeds can go to destroy other lives. And um, I think John's, uh, John's a brilliant writer. His, uh, his take on stories tends to um, tip more to the darker side where mm-hmm. I'm looking more for redemption, hope, and humor. So, um, but we both found it in the same place. Right. But he's also talking about how his own experience helped, you know, motivate him and and inspire him to to dig deeper and to write more about that area because he was exposed, just like you've been exposed as a, you started as a mystery writer, you got interested in true crime. You went to some of these, uh, I don't know what they call them, classes or academies? Yeah, where I took, yeah, I actually took college classes in crime scene investigation as well as conferences and, yeah. 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 All right, well, uh, I've got one here from Aaron Gwynn. He's a local uh, UNC Charlotte uh, professor. I love this. He I says, there, there are no stories where characters are just sitting in the recliner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, that's, that it is a be. basic <laughs> bit of advice for writing a story, you know. And sometimes writers, we forget that. You know, it's really about the action. It's about what's happening. It's about uh, momentum. I think it was um, uh, one of our authors said, you know, just, just keep it moving. Keep, keep the story moving. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it'll go somewhere. But if they're just sitting in a recliner, who cares? Right, who cares? <laughs> um, and Sarah, you, um, you've got a quote from Jordan O'Donnell. Uh, you want to share that? Yeah, sure. So this quote says, I tried to leave it open to interpretation because I wanted people to see their own beliefs and their own opinions within the book and then have them sort of reflected in the mirror. Um, and I love that. I, I really like it when a writer leaves a lot up to the reader to interpret and kind of gives the reader an active role in the reading process and in creating their own vision of the story. Um, I think that's something that is a little bit a matter of taste. Some 
readers prefer to have things a little bit more directed for them. But I, I really enjoy when there's a lot of room for interpretation. I like it when things are kind of left open-ended, um, which drives some readers crazy. <laughs> but I, I like it that it can be sort of a joint process where the way that I read a book or a story might be different from the way that any of you or anybody else would read it. Um, and it's a very individual thing. Yeah, no, that's good. I think his book was a bit allegorical. He used he used these characters that were in a zoo, and uh, they squared off against each other. And it was also it was kind of like the world's uh, country squaring off against them, but from the perspective of these uh, animals and how they would elect certain leaders and that kind of thing. So, uh, but you know, you would see you would have your own opinions about the story, but you might identify with certain characters more than others. Um, so let's see, uh, Hannah, you got a quote about storytelling here mm-hmm. uh, from Brian Andrews. Uh, he, he's a thriller writer. What does he say? Yeah, he says, storytellers try to think, what if this is really happening? Um, <laughs> you know, I love that because I, I think we talked about it on a recent episode too, just sort of the, the idea of like, what if this was real? <laughs> like, what is that how it's like a good prompt? Like, what if this happened or what if that happened? Um, so I just thought that was, that was really good. And especially as like a person, like when, if you're thinking about reading thrillers or scary stuff, like we were just talking about with you, Kathy, it's kind of like, wow, what if I was there for this <laughs> or what if, what if this, is this something, mm. I guess in your case, all of that stuff, yes, it really <laughs> did happen. There was a toy <laughs> store man on the loose, like, you know, but I think it's just kind of a creative thing to say. And I feel like that can probably help take your story, you know, even further in a direction too. If you kind of ask yourself like, what if this was to happen and then what would happen after that? And then, what, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, Kathy, isn't that kind of how you move from, you know, mystery writing to true crime, storytellers are like, what if this is really happening? Well, you know? yeah, yeah. And and it's the most outlandish things that um, you, we can put in books. But if we try to put in a work of fiction, something that really happened, um, an editor's going to go, nobody's going to believe that. <laughs> so I actually had that happen one time <laughs> in one of my novels. It's like, um, so we have this weird relationship with reality, I think, <laughs> that, that as readers we get to experience a lot of different realities. Hannah, when you say this stuff really happened, it's like um, I found that most, the majority, the vast majority of readers of true crime are there to try to understand what's going on so they'll be prepared. Yeah, that's So I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. And the editors are the first ones that seem to think that it couldn't happen because I had a yeah. friend who wrote, he was a medical thriller writer and he was also a cardiologist and he wrote this great uh, book as it got a lot of favorable press. We had him on the podcast and uh, the editor said to, to the agent, well, you know, this whole uh, section here, it just doesn't ring true medically. And she's like, <laughs> The guy's a doctor. What are you? I mean, you know. <laughs> you, you I played one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's uh, a we're going to give Mark DeCastrick, uh some closing quotes here because Kathy picked one from him and I did too. Mark is a local mystery writer. He's got about 20 novels now. Uh, one is in the Burying Barry series because Mark was uh, born in a essentially a mortuary because his father was an undertaker and uh, up in the western North Carolina. So he got started with the uh, main character who solved crimes while running a funeral home. And then he branched out and he did another series. And now he's doing Ethel uh, up in D.C. who is patterned after, uh, you know, RGB. Uh, he sort of visualizes her as as, as uh as the protege there. But anyway, Mark uh, has, you have something from Mark, uh, Kathy, you'd like to share? Oh, yeah. He, 
he says that um I started to read yours here. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can't understand or listen to someone else's story, then you've really shut yourself off. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's got a story. And I think, I, I know I'm guilty of it. Do I take enough time sometimes to just stop and listen? Mm, yeah. And I'll add a quote that I picked out from Mark. Stories are part of our DNA. They separate us from the rest of the species on the planet. That's really cool. I mean, look, folks, that's why we... We get absorbed in Netflix and Amazon and we pick up books, uh, whether they're used or whether they're brand new or whether we get them from the library or borrow them from a friend, you know, like uh, my friends did uh, when my book was trying to be sold. I was playing golf. I think I've told this story before. I was playing golf with some friends and one of them said, hey, I didn't know you'd written a book. I said, yeah. And he said, I'd like to get it. Where can I get it? And the other guy said, don't worry about that. I've got a copy. I'll I'll loan you mine. Oh, my God. I'm like, dude, you just—I just lost a dollar fifty. You know, don't, don't. <laughs> you know. We're back to that uh, fame and fortune discussion now, aren't we? Fame and fortune discussion. <laughs> Go buy exactly. your own copy, uh, <laughs> Fred. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, okay, well, folks, we're gonna uh, we're gonna drop in my reflections now, which are in the we do this uh, in the books. Uh, co-host of, of mine, Sarah and Hannah, they share. Uh, the forwards in the books, and I, I write reflections. Um, and so here's the reflections. We'll be right back. Uh, let's listen in. The three biggest lessons I learned from the topics covered in this book are that story ideas come to writers in many ways. Writers cannot always explain where or how their ideas originate, and the stories they tell are often underpinned by some form of research. As New York Times bestselling author Ron Rash said, I don't know where stories come from. I'm kind of a youngin. I just think they're kind of out there. It's not so much that we create them as we discover them. And as Nancy Stansel, an award-winning investigator reporter, said, you're going to need research for most novels because even though novels are made up, there's usually a lot of underpinning of something that really happened. A few years before I retired from practicing law, I wrote three books, The Christmas Courtroom Trilogy, a humorous collection of holiday mysteries about what happens when lawyers have to defend clients who think they work for Santa Claus. The idea for the first book came to me one Thanksgiving evening while the movie Miracle on 34th Street was on the television in the other room. I suddenly had a vague notion that led to a novella that one reviewer called a script somewhere between the screenplays for My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. The ideas for the second and the third books in the trilogy came from playing the What If game, and I found that even stories about Santa Claus need research. How else would I be able to explain the one-star review I got from the upset reader who said, if you are looking for a book that equates people who believe in Santa Claus with people who believe in global warming, then volume three of this trilogy is the book for you. You no longer have to imagine what Al Gore would like to read to his grandchildren on Christmas Eve. Author Landis Wade has brought the inconvenient truth to the holiday season. For true believers only. Warning Mystery author Mark DeCastric observed that the thing about stories is that they are part of our DNA. They separate us from the rest of the species on this planet. Clyde Edgerton, whose beloved novels have been made into three movies, said that stories come from inside us. I like what Faulkner said about the tools for writing. The tools are your own experience. Everything you see or read, that is, your observation and your imagination, you can pull from these treasure chests at any given time. Award-winning author John Buchan reminded us that when telling stories, make sure you either know things or you go learn about them. 
that makes your story credible. They, the all-powerful and all-knowing they, lecture writers all the time. They tell us, for example, that good stories must start in the middle where the action is, where things happen, where pages beg to be turned and where readers shout, by God, I can't put this down. It's so damn good to be in the middle. This may be helpful advice, but it's a bit more strident than what we hear from the writers in this book. They are not so unequivocal about storytelling. They tell us there is more than one way to tell a story. They are not like those, the friends of they, who carry their writing advice around in royal slosh buckets and spill their words of advice on writers as if writers are peasants in need of authoritarian guidance. No, the writers in this book offered insights with a certain humility and responsibility of the craft of storytelling. And in the process, they gave us little gems to guide us along the way, like award-winning author Aaron Gwynn, who said, there are no stories where characters are just sitting in the recliner. And like award-winning author Rick Prill, who said, there's a responsibility when you're a writer to know your genre. And what Cliff Jurgen, a writer who puts humor in his mysteries, told us about the essence of storytelling when he said, nobody has ever picked up a book and told their friend, on page 271 is one of the greatest sentences I ever read. They just say, heck, check this book out. It's one dang good story. So, what might the number one thing to remember be about storytelling? If you ask New York Times bestselling novelist Amber Smith, it's not about writing the most beautiful descriptions if that takes away from what you're trying to say. It's not about writing what you think will sell, as wandering novelist Robert Gwaltney informs us, nor is it about falling in love with your own words or showing off on the page, as New York Times bestselling novelist C.J. Box reminds us. Rather, as M. William Phelps, one of the leading true crime writers and podcasts in the U.S., puts it, the answer is quite simple. People want to be entertained, so be a good storyteller. Additionally, as Charlotte mystery writer Susan Mills Wilson confirms, make sure every scene enhances the story. All right, so uh, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you all for listening uh, to that discussion of uh, about book four. You can get this book uh, wherever books are sold. It's in uh, ebook. It's in uh, print. Uh, and uh, if you want to join our street team, what do you do, Sarah? Um, it's pretty easy. You can go to our website and sign up. I think there's a, a link through the contact page. Or also, if you go to the page about the podcast books, there's a link on there. Um, but you just fill out a little form, and then we'll send you ebooks of all ebooks in the series for free as they're released. And we just asked in return that you just leave your honest reviews um, online. Yeah, that's great. And Hannah, if they join Patreon, what do they get? Well, for as little as $5 a month, <laughs> you can join our Patreon channel um, and you will get all of the books in the series for free, the ebooks, um, once a month as soon as they're out. And then you'll also have access to a bunch of exclusive content that you don't hear on the regular shows. So it's like 150 extra episodes of awesome content. So join up. Yeah, and I think Kathy's in, <laughs> Kathy's in one or two of those, I think. So <laughs> yes. check those out. Um, all right. Well, we'll be, uh, we'll be right back with uh, Act 3 in just a moment. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, here we are in Act 3. We've got uh, our book recommendation section. We've got uh, uh, Mark West as well, who's going to share his uh, book recommendation. And then we got what's coming next. So... We'll start out, uh, well, we'll start with Kathy since you're uh, riding along with us today. What do you, what do you recommend today? Um, there has been so much conversation about genetic genealogy and cold case solves. 
And Edward Humes, who's an award-winning writer, has just come out with the forever witness how DNA and genealogy solved a cold case double murder. And it focuses on Cece Moore. Some people have seen her with um, Henry Louis Gates on PBS and uh, Parabon Nano Lab. So it's uh, science and true crime and um, how the technology fits together and who's made it happen. Mm. That sounds great and a great time with what you're doing as well. Um, Hannah, what do you got this week? Yeah, I am recommending a book called Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, I love her so much. Uh, I just ordered this as part of like I do the book of the month thing and it was on there and I actually ordered like 75% of the books. <laughs> that were available this month <laughs> but yeah no it's her new book i was super excited to see that she had something else coming out and it's it is a romantic comedy um but it's kind of different from i don't know if you guys have read prep but that was like my intro to her stuff and it was a little bit dark of a darker take on um like a prep school um with you know teenage girls and that kind of thing and um this is more lighthearted so far which is kind of nice um but it's about a writer for kind of an snl type of show and she gets herself in kind of a love triangle but it's more so just about like the depths of love and like relationships and just like you know kind of how you view yourself and what you think you deserve out of a partnership and that kind of thing so it's it's really good it's it's like a very well written um i just i really like it so far so recommend well, when I saw that title, Hannah, I'm thinking they've probably got a publicist working with them. They're thinking, let's just put on the cover where they're going to shelve this book, and, <laughs> Make it and, easy. and so people know exactly what they're getting. You know, they don't have to be confused at all. This is if you like romantic comedies, you're going to get it in this particular. Yeah, book. they just love this book. Tell you what you're going to get immediately off the get go. No guessing. <laughs> Sarah, what you got for us this week? Um, so I'm recommending something a little bit different, uh, Tales of the Unexpected by Roald mm. Dahl, which is a book that I remember when I was a kid growing up, my parents had a copy of this in the house. And so that's how I read it. Um, and I, I read it like over and over again when I was a kid because I was a very weird kid. <laughs> Not much has changed as an adult, but it's um, <laughs> even though it's he's mostly known, obviously, for his children's writing, this is actually an anthology of short stories written for adults. It's a little bit like the twilight zone as a series of short stories, I would say like they're all a little bit surreal, strange, dark. Some of them get into kind of fantasy or speculative fiction. Some of them are more, more grounded, but they're all a little bit like off kilter from reality, but very witty and entertaining at the same time. Um, I remember there was one about like a man who starts eating royal jelly, which is the substance that bees produce. And he starts turning into a giant bee. <laughs> There's one about like, a man who is um, like a world famous wine expert and he thinks that he can identify any wine ever and he makes a very daring bet based on that and then has like dark consequences because of it. Um, it's just, it's a really fun and kind of unusual collection. He was such a, a wonderful and just very imaginative writer. Um, so that's one that I've, I've loved since I was a kid and would highly recommend. That's great. And, and listeners, as you know, as you've been listening to the end of our shows, our book recommendations, you do get a variety uh, of recommendations because <laughs> we all like different things. And uh, so I'm going to give you one of my favorite authors, uh, Louis L'Amour. Uh, he was born in 1908 uh, and he wrote until the age of 80 when he died in 1988. And he published 105 books, 89 novels, 14 short story collections and two works of nonfiction. And he's known primarily for his westerns. Um, I, I used to collect these books and read, I don't know how many, on a beach vacation or a beach weekend. He's a really good storyteller. Um, and this week I'm recommending his Sackett series. If you want to dive into something that, uh, you know, if you like to read, 
a lot of books in a row that involve a family that's uh, crossing the West. Uh, you got Sackett's Land into the Far Blue Mountains and the Warrior's Path and on and on and on until the man from the Broken Hills. And each there's going to be a gunfight, folks, in every book. If you like gunfights, you know, <laughs> there's going to be one of those in every book. But uh, it, this is a pioneer family, they, and, and Louis Moore brings them to life. And then they made several movies about the Sacketts, too. So that's one. I'm going to be telling you about other books that are a little bit different from his Westerns uh, in the coming, because he did write, uh, he wrote a thriller once, and he wrote uh, historical fiction. I'm going to talk about those books. But I'll also share, I've probably done this before. Janet's probably getting hard, tired of me telling this, but we've only had like two yard sales in our life. One recently when we moved to Downsize, and uh the other one, when I lost my Louis L'Amour collection of paperbacks because Janet decided to put them in the yard sale while I was out of town. Oh gosh. And people were buying them for like a nickel. So, you know, she probably priced them at 10 cents and they bargained her down to a nickel. And, I, and so I was like, what are you doing? And she said, she said, you've read all these books. And I said, and, and I, said I know that, but I can read them fast and I like to read them. And she says, but I can tell you how they start and how they end. And she would say, oh my gosh. the school marm is in trouble. Zane rides into town in a horse. You know, they, he gets in a gunfight, saves her, and then rides off. Now, I never understood exactly why they ride off at the end. There's a beautiful woman standing there. They've just saved the day. And then he's going to ride off into the sunset. To work. He's got to go to the next school, Mom, right? There's another one in trouble. I don't There's know. But anyway, school. it resulted in me getting a leather-bound collection of William Moore oh short stories uh, a few Christmases later. so Probably cost a lot more than the nickel that you made from that. Exactly. I think I came sand. out well in the end, um, except that I can't get sand on those. That's the only problem. Yeah. Hey, oh, let's yeah. listen to Mark West's recommendation this week. Hello. This is Mark West with the Storage Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is by my friend and colleague, Dr. Janica Bowman Lewis, and it's titled, Light and Legacies, Stories of Black Girlhood and Liberation, which the University of South Carolina Press recently released. Light and Legacies is grounded in Janica's deep knowledge of literary texts by Black women writers, but this book does not have the feel of a dry academic treatise. Janica combines her critical analyses of texts with their personal reflections about growing up Black in the American South and about being the parent of two Black children. The result is a highly readable and thought-provoking examination of stories about Black girlhood. I highly recommend it. All right. Thanks, Mark, uh, for that. Uh, thanks uh, to the co-host uh, and to Kathy for that. Kathy, thanks a lot for joining us today on, on the podcast. We really yeah. appreciate having you back. and. Sounds like a great book. This is great fun. Thank y'all so much. Yeah, and Sarah, you want to tell our listeners what we're going to have next uh, next episode? Sure. Next time we're going to feature Robert McCaw, a trial lawyer turned acclaimed author. We've had a few of those on the show. <laughs> author of Retribution, which is his latest novel in the Akua Kane Hawaiian Mystery Series. We also feature Dana Sachs, author of All Else Failed, and her blog post called Chronicling the Uniquely Human Need to Lend a Hand, Even in the Darkest of Times. Plus, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, elevator pitches, and book recommendations. All right. And uh, Hannah, you, you become famous for our party words. So you want to take us out <laughs> oh, of here? yeah. Everybody just read on, ride on, and rock on. <laughs> <laughs>